Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.19, Poppea Sabina, A Cruel and Devious Woman. We have three new patrons of the podcast to thank this week, Jen, Kimberlyn, and Scarlett. Your support is incredibly helpful and always appreciated. You are amazing, as indeed are all my other patrons. If you'd like to join up and become a patron of the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. Since this is going to be quite a long episode, I'll leave the intro to that. So, all there is left to say is, to all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. I said in the last episode that Nero, though a pretty crappy emperor, doesn't quite make the top tier of awfulness. He may have spent away the empire's finances, neglected his duties, and engaged in quite a bit of violent repression and straight-up murder, but he doesn't hit the seismic awful of men like Caligula and Caracalla. Much the same can also be said of the portrayal of Papir Sabina in the sources. They place her in the typical role of the devious, manipulative other woman, the oversexed, ambitious hussy who uses her body and cunning to bring evil upon the Empire. I'm sure you're all familiar with this trope. We've seen it so many times before, and if you pay attention, you see it everywhere in the world, even today. Every wrong move, every bad decision made by the men around her is attributed to her interference. 
evil intent is ascribed to everything she did. But like Nero, she doesn't quite find herself in that top tier of evil women of ancient Rome, populated by women like, say, Cleopatra. The reason for this, simply, is that they didn't comparatively write all that much about her, probably because they simply didn't know all that much. Only one ancient source was actually around when she was politically active, and the rest of them seemed to act mostly on hearsay and gossip. But despite this, they are all united in this negative depiction. Like Livia, Messalina and Agrippina, she has quite the list of victims associated with her name, including, of course, her mother-in-law. But for most of them, we only have the word of untrustworthy and known biased sources. The fact is that, should Papier not have married Nero, we would likely have never known that she had lived. The only reason that her name even survives to us is due to her infamy. This portrayal in the sources is often reflected in her appearances in later popular culture. The piece of music that played at the start of the episode is a duet called Portimiro from an opera called The Coronation of Papier by Claudio Monteverdi. It actually goes on for over 40 minutes and it is absolutely beautiful. I put a link to it in the show notes if you'd like to have a listen. It is said to be the first opera to have ever been based on historical events, and largely portrays Papier as being a conniving, sexually aggressive, manipulative and ambitious woman who cruelly sidelines the virtuous Octavia. She's also a main character in Handel's Agrippina, where she plays a similar villainous role. Moving forward a little to more modern depictions, things don't change all that much. She's played by a young Brigitte Bardot in the film My Son's Mistress in 1956 and shows up in scores of other films and TV shows, from a 1969 Italian comedy film called Papaya's Hot Nights, where she seemingly sleeps with half of ancient Rome, to TV series and historical films such as Nero and The Sign of the Cross. My personal favourite, though, if you'll indulge me, is a very early Doctor Who episode from the early 1960s called The Romans where one of the Doctor's companions is enslaved and then bought by Papier to serve as a handmaiden. In a shock turn of events, Nero becomes rather enamoured with his companion, causing Papier to become super jealous and attempt to have her poisoned. Given the debauchery of Nero's court and the quality of the drama that it offers, coupled with the joy in which writers find in writing sexually manipulative female characters, it is unsurprising that modern depictions of Papier have rather slavishly followed the model found in the ancient sources. But dig a little deeper, and you'll always find a more nuanced picture. Picking through it all is difficult, but that's why you have me. So let's get going and look at the life of Nero's second wife. Papia Sabina was born in the city of Pompeii in around 31 CE. For reference, this makes her about the same age as Claudia Octavia, and therefore a few years younger than Nero. Her father was Titus Olius, of whose origins we know very little, except that he was from outside the traditional Roman elite. That said, he did manage to forge a good career for himself, largely thanks to his being a close friend and client of Tiberius's Praetorian prefect Sejanus. Unfortunately for him, though, this meant that when Sejanus fell in 31, just a few months after Papia's birth, he went down with the ship, and likely suffered a protracted and painful death. This meant that Papia was raised by a single mother, also called Papia Sabina. 
This is actually quite interesting, as daughters were usually named after their fathers, meaning that she would likely have initially been called Olia. But, probably to disassociate her daughter from her disgraced and purged father, her mother made the decision to change her daughter's name, linking it instead to her own father, Gaius Papaius Sabinus. Quite apart from the good politics of expunging the memory of her fallen father, it also meant that Papia was now linked to the far more distinguished part of her family. Her maternal grandfather, a former consul and provincial governor during the reign of Augustus, was a very well-respected man, and close with both Augustus and Tiberius. Her mother also quickly remarried, this time to a man named Publius Cornelius Lentullus Scipio, a man of high rank who would be able to offer her and her namesake daughter a measure of protection in the dangerous world of Roman power politics. The name Scipio still carried significant weight in the Roman world, and he used it to have a very successful military and political career, culminating in him becoming governor of Asia. We know absolutely nothing of the specifics of Papia's early life, so we are forced to skip ahead to 44, where, at the age of 13, she married for the first time. The lucky man was Rufrius Crispinus, a wealthy man of equestrian class who was considerably older than she, who was, at that point, one of the Praetorian prefects. This was quite a typical marriage for a woman of Papia's position to make. Her new husband would benefit from her wealth and links to her family, in this case her stepfather Scipio, and she would gain the protection of being a married woman and would hopefully bear him children who would cement her position as a respectable lady in society. Therefore, it looked like Papia had managed to throw off the stigma of her disgraced father and had her name rehabilitated. But then, in 47, disgrace again fell upon her family. This time, the victim was her mother. The instigator, Valeria Messalina. If you recall from way back, Messalina wants to take down a man named Asiaticus for complex reasons that history has decided to put solely down to her coveting the ownership of the gardens of Lucullus. The way that she brought down Asiaticus was through accusing him of having had an affair with Papia's mother, of whom Messalina was apparently jealous because she had been a former lover of one of the Empress's favourites. When Asiaticus was brought down, it caused the absolute ruin of Papia's mother, who was forced to commit suicide shortly afterwards. Interestingly, Papia's husband, Crispinus, was tangentially involved in the whole affair, as he was the one who actually arrested Asiaticus. For this, he was rewarded handsomely, thanks for handling a sensitive situation very deftly. So now, at the age of 17, Papia had lost both her parents to political intrigue, and was now reliant on two old men, her stepfather and her husband, for her protection. She was a relatively wealthy woman, and her husband had just come into quite a bit of money, but her position was hardly secure given all the controversy. The sources also report that she never forgave her husband for his role in her mother's ruin. There are suggestions that, from here, she began to embark on a series of affairs with various men as a kind of humiliating revenge on her husband, but they don't add much in the way of detail to these accusations. Relations between husband and wife, though, were sufficiently cordial for them to produce their only son in 55, a boy named Rufrius Crispinus, because Romans had no imagination. 
There are many possible reasons for the fact that Papia only had one child with her first husband. It could be that she was not particularly fertile, which, combined with the ancient world's terrible natal care, led her to only having having the one child. This is backed up by the fact that this seemingly ran in the family, as she herself was an only child. But another simpler explanation is that this was a symptom of how loveless her marriage was. Put simply, it's hard to have kids if you can't stand to be in the same room together. We are left to such speculations because there are no real further details offered about Papir's first marriage, so we must skip ahead again, this time to 58. Papir, by now, was 27 years old, and had been married for around 14 years. But seems to have been someone practised at using her good looks and charm to win the attention of powerful men. It is in that year, though, that Papir seems to have snagged the greatest prize winning the attention of the Emperor Nero. To put this in the context of our other narratives, as I know dates can be confusing, this was the year before Agrippina's death, a period in which she was still around but very much weakened in power, while Octavia was still very much ignored. Nero had had numerous affairs during his marriage to Octavia, but Papea was something different. The sources seem to portray her as having twisted the emperor around her little finger, using her sexual charms to advance herself at the expense of all others. This affair was the final straw in her marriage, and led to her finally divorcing Crispinus. To finish off his story, he would eventually become a member of the Senate thanks to his wealth, but would eventually get entangled up in the Pisonian conspiracy that very nearly toppled Nero in 65, which would lead to his committing suicide. He would also likely have had the custody of his son after the breakup of the marriage, as was customary in Roman law, but he died young at the age of 10. Now, this is where things get very soap opera-y, and a little confusing, as the sources disagree on the exact timeline. The man at the centre of this episode was Marcus Salvius Otho. He was a man of distinguished rank on his mother's side, and whose father had grown up in the household of Livia. He seems to have had a very wild childhood. Suetonius states, quote, From his earliest youth, he was extravagant and wild to such degree that his father often beat him with a sandal. This wildness seems to have attracted him to Nero, and they appeared to have become firm friends from an early age. They were both privileged men, surrounded by every luxury, and loved to gorge themselves on every one of life's pleasures. Otho appears to have acted as Nero's wingman when they would go out in Rome and cause havoc. They were best mates, but this would be put to the test when Papia Sabina came to the scene. As I said, for this episode we have four competing narratives. The first comes from Cassius Dio, who states that, quote, It was to Otho that the emperor gave Sabina, and they both enjoyed her together. Nice and simple, just two bros sharing a mistress quite happily. Interestingly, he doesn't actually claim that she and Otho ever married, just that they had an affair. Now, Suetonius starts with a similar idea, that of Nero and Otho both sleeping with Papia, but with different results. Quote, When Papia Sabina, who up to that time had been Nero's mistress, was turned over for that time being to Otho, he pretended marriage with her, but... Not content with seducing her, he became so devoted that he could not endure the thought of having Nero even as a rival. 
So Suetonius is saying that Nero essentially asked Otho if he would mind having a sham marriage with Papir, but that Otho had unexpectedly caught feelings and become very jealous. While those two narratives differ on this and some other details, what they share is the notion that Papir had already been Nero's mistress when she became involved with Otho. Our other two historians of the period, Plutarch and Tacitus, have a different view. Plutarch takes the award for the most cynical view of the situation. His take is, quote, As for Papir, Otho corrupted her with hopes of Nero's favour and seduced her first himself and persuaded her to leave her husband. However, after she came to live with him as his wife, he was not content to have only a share in her favours and was loath to give Nero a share. His view, then, is that Otho seduced Papir into stating that he was the ticket to her catching the eye of the emperor. They therefore had a sham marriage on this basis that they would help each other become Nero's chief favourites. However, much like in the other sources, Otho caught feelings and wanted Papir all for himself. This account is rather pleasing to me, as it at least offers some agency to Papir, and is just wonderfully overdramatic. However, as usual... No one can outdo Tacitus for drama. His view, perhaps surprisingly actually, is a little less cynical than that of Plutarch. He states that Papir, quote, was attracted by the youth and fashionable elegance of Otho, and by the fact, too, that he was reputed to have Nero's most ardent friendship. Without any delay, the intrigue was followed by marriage. Otho now began to praise his wife's beauty and accomplishments to the emperor, either from a lover's thoughtlessness or to inflame Nero's passion in the hope of adding to his own influence by the further tie which would arise out of possession of the same woman. So, in the view of Tacitus, while Papir's reason for marrying Otho was rather cynical, Otho himself could simply have induced Nero to fall for his wife purely by innocently raving to him about how great she was, though he does offer the counter view as well that these views could have been significantly less pure. Who are we to believe, then? Well, there are some clues to be found in what we know to have happened next, which is that Otho and Papir divorced, assuming that they were married in the first place, and that he was sent to be governor of Lusitania, a province that roughly conforms to modern Portugal and western Spain, a posting in which he would stay for the rest of Nero's reign. This posting is portrayed as rather more of a banishment than an honour, as it was very far away from Rome, and considered to be a bit of a backwater province. This would all seem to back up the accounts of those historians who state that Otho was not exactly wild about Nero's relationship with Papir, and the fact that the two never seemed to have communicated after Otho left for Lusitania. This strength of break does suggest that he had some serious feelings for her, which suggests to me that perhaps he met Papir first and then alerted Nero to her, whether directly or indirectly. This means that I'm more in the Plutarch and Tacitus camp, but really, it is only a hunch. The truth will remain one of ancient history's many mysteries. Otho now leaves our narrative, but his big moment in history was yet to come. After Nero's death, he will become emperor number two in the bloody year of the four emperors, overthrowing Galba, but then only ruling for three brief months before being himself overthrown by Vitellius. But that's another story. Before we return to our tale, though, it is worth quickly asking why Papir was able to cause such drama in the relationship between Nero and Otho, as she does seem to have been the chief reason for them falling out. 
We know that her mother had been considered Rome's greatest beauty in her day, and it seems that her daughter inherited those good genes. Nero is reported to have written songs and poems extolling the beauty of her amber-coloured curls, and it seems that she worked hard to maintain her looks, knowing full well that they were one of her greatest assets. Pliny the Elder, in his Natural History, claims that, quote, Asses milk is also thought to be very efficacious in whitening the skin of females. At all events, Papia used to have with her 500 asses with foal, and used to bathe the whole of her body in their milk, thinking that it also conferred additional suppleness on the skin. This account is backed up by Juvenal, and so may have had a measure of truth to it. Quite extraordinary. Yet, she wasn't just a pretty face and a suppled skin lady, as this whole episode demonstrates. It seems likely that she had cleverly manipulated the whole episode with Otho, so as to ensure that she was in a position to seduce the emperor, become his chief mistress, and then use that influence to be a powerful figure in Rome. These aren't the acts of a blonde airhead. She was the real deal. While the dating is argued over, it appears that Otho departed the scene at some point in late 58 or early 59, and it was then, finally, that Papia became Nero's sole favourite. Now, of course, he was still married, and the spectre of his mother still hung around, but if the sources are to be believed, Papia immediately set in motion a plan of action to deal with those two women. We covered the falls of Agrippina and Octavia in their respective episodes, but it's worth briefly revisiting them from Papia's point of view. She is very much portrayed as the antagonist in the stories of their demise, particularly in the case of Agrippina. Tacitus, for example, has her using her tongue, both honeyed and poisonous in nature, to chide Nero into getting rid of Agrippina as a means of attaining the divorce from Octavia. Quote, Day by day, Nero burned more hotly with love for Papia, who, hopeless of wedlock for herself and divorce for Octavia so long as Agrippina lived, plied the sovereign with frequent reproaches and occasional mockery, styling him the ward dependent on the rule of others, who was neither the empire's master nor his own. For why was her wedding deferred? Was it perhaps her beauty and her ancestors with their triumphs that failed to please? Or was the trouble her fecundity and truth of heart? No, it was feared that, as a wife at all events, she might disclose the wrongs of the Senate, the anger of the nation against the pride and greed of his mother. If the only daughter-in-law Agrippina could bear was one who wished evil to her son, let her be restored to her union with Otho. She would go to any corner of the earth where she could hear the emperor's ignominy rather than view it and be entangled in his perils. To these and similar attacks pressed home by tears and adulterous art, no opposition was offered. The sources, Tacitus included, don't actually go so far as to say that Papia ordered Nero to murder his mother. The blame for that they reserve for the emperor himself. But she is seen as the catalyst, the one that shoved him over the brink. Agrippina, with her fervent support for Octavia, would always be a threat to Papia's ambitions for as long as she remained alive. She would have raised holy hell if any serious move had been made against Octavia. And so, Tacitus' argument, heavily influenced by malevolent stereotypes as it is, may have a measure of truth to it. The other explanation offered, if you recall, was that Nero's eye had wandered again, 
this time to a mistress who was a spitting image of a young Agrippina. And so Papia engineered the fall of Agrippina out of petty jealousy rather than a lust for power. But getting rid of Agrippina would only be one step on the road to becoming empress for Papia, as even after the emperor's mother was dispatched of, she still found herself blocked, this time by Burrus and Seneca. However, once they had left the picture, and new advisers such as Tigellinus were in place, everything fell in place for the removal of Octavia. The problem getting rid of Octavia, remember, was not the lack of legitimate reason, as infertility was perfectly legal grounds for annulling a marriage. No, the real problem was the optics of the whole thing. The Empress was very popular and respected, while Papia was just the devious other woman. This was shown very starkly in the riots that took place after rumours had spread that Nero had changed his mind and decided to ditch Papia in favour of his wife, where effigies and statues of Papia were thrown down and images of Octavia were garlanded and paraded through the streets. Two rather nasty accusations are levelled at her over this affair. The first is that she instigated and maybe even led the torture of Octavia's slaves, through which they gained the confessions of the Empress's supposed adultery. The second is that when Octavia was eventually murdered on the faraway island, her head was brought back to Rome at Papia's request, so that she could have a good gloat. For those of you with really good memories, this mirrors an accusation thrown at Agrippina, who apparently ordered the severed head of Lolia Paulina to be brought to her after her murder. As with her predecessor, this accusation of such a gross act is she more of an attempt at character assassination than a true reporting of events. Though, again, we can't know for sure. Whatever the course of events, the fact is that only 12 days after annulling his marriage with Octavia, Nero married Papia. Of all the relationships in his life, this appears to have been the most passionate and the longest lasting. A lot of the narrative of their relationship seems to be that they were simply two horrible people who were therefore perfect for each other. But there are many reasons for why this union made sense. First of all, it got Nero out of a marriage that he hated that had been foisted upon him by his mother. He had had to severely rock the boat to get out of it and been forced to kill his ex-wife to do it, but he had managed it. Their union had been the product of a previous regime's priorities. It had helped give security to Claudius's rule and entrench Nero as the heir. But it had ceased to be useful, and so why not start afresh with someone whom he actually liked? Second, it was a chance to further the line with a woman of proven fertility. We can argue whether Nero's childless union with Octavia was down to neglect or her infidelity, but there is no doubt that this new marriage offered far greater opportunities for having kids. And finally, it was yet another occasion where Nero could prove that he was his own man. Octavia was really the last vestige of his mother's influence. Now that she was gone, he was totally free to drive his own course. These are the reasons for why this marriage worked for Nero, but it's quickly worth looking at Papia's motives. Tacitus ascribes to her only the most cynical of worldviews. Quote, She was a woman possessed of all advantages but a character. Her conversation was engaging, her wit not without point. She paraded modestly, yet practised wantonness. She drew no distinctions between husbands and adulterers, vulnerable neither to her own nor to her lover's passion. Wherever there was a prospect of advantage, 
There, she transferred her favours. Ambition, it seems, most definitely drove her peers' journey to the Empress-ship. The route was too difficult, the opposition too fierce, for it to have been overcome by mere accident. We talked about the role she played in the falls of Agrippina and Octavia already as well. There is no doubting her ruthlessness. But what we don't know is whether she sought power for its own sake, with Nero merely being the conduit through which she could now operate, or if she had genuine feelings for him. The sources certainly portray them as being two peas in a pod, two malevolent souls united and shared evil, and there may be a bit of a truth in that. They certainly seemed to have shared genuine chemistry. The root of their relationship, though, was mutual advantage, but it didn't mean that they didn't care for each other as well. Now that she had become empress, she likely had ambitions and ideas for how she wants to make her mark on the empire. Before she married Nero, she had teamed up with a Praetorian prefect, Tigellinus, to form a powerful double act, and they acted together to be a powerful source of influence over imperial policy. Tacitus calls them, quote, intimate counsellors of the emperor's brutalities, and this is backed up by other sources who portray them as being demons conquering the better angels in Nero's mind. Yet, this was not an equal pairing. Tigellinus was by far the more powerful actor, and while Papir was a useful ally to have, his advantages of power and gender meant that he could wield power that she could not. She had managed to rise to the top, but it seems that Papir did not have the skills and perhaps the luck to be able to be a political player in the mould of Livia or Agrippina. They had the advantage of being married to hard-working emperors who relished governing and were willing to let them play their part. Nero was no Augustus or Claudius. His idea of a good time was not being buried in boring bureaucracy, and so this left fewer opportunities for Papir to bring her influence to bear. The attributes that had got her this far, her beauty, charm and use of her sexuality, could only get her so far. She did not have the base of support or nobility of birth to really be a powerful force. Those two things were the bedrock, the foundation of Livia and Agrippina's power. Without them, Papia found that she had built her house on quicksand. But is it really so certain that she wanted great political power? Was becoming empress, for the privilege and wealth that came with it, enough for her? It's worth asking the question, as while the sources are extremely preoccupied with her apparent bloodlust, the absence from the record of much in the way of evidence of political intervention does suggest that maybe she was content with the way things were. Then again, there may have been many instances of her bringing her influence to bear that were either not visible to anyone watching or were simply ignored by the ancient historians. In short, we just don't know what she really wanted. While she never hit the heights of her illustrious forebears while empress, there are a few examples in the sources of Papir exerting some influence. In the narrative sources, these mostly come from the pen of the Jewish historian Josephus. The first was her helping a man called Gessius Florius gain the governorship of Judea, thanks apparently to her friendship with his wife. The second is rather more interesting, and has to do with the imprisonment of some Jewish priests in Rome. Josephus writes, quote, I became acquainted with Aliturius, an actor of plays and much beloved by Nero, but a Jew by birth. And through his interest came known to Papir, Caesar's wife, 
and took care as soon as possible to entreat her to procure that the priest might be set at liberty. And when, besides this favour, I had obtained many presents from Papier, I returned home again. And then, finally, there was the affair of a wall at the temple at Jerusalem. Basically, the priests at the temple constructed a wall in the temple to obscure the view of the Roman-appointed king and governor during the passage of certain religious rites. Both king and governor objected, and so ambassadors from the temple were sent to Rome to argue their case in front of the emperor. Josephus says what happened next. Quote, Nero had heard what they had to say. He not only forgave them what they had already done, but also gave them leave to let the wall they had built stand. This was granted them in order to gratify Papia, Nero's wife, who was a religious woman and had requested these favours of Nero. There is also a suggestion that Papia's sympathies with the Jews may have had an influence in the aftermath of the Great Fire. In 64, Rome was hit by one of the worst fires in its history. It raged for six days and destroyed perhaps as much as three quarters of the city. For complicated reasons that I won't get into, Nero was the chief target of blame, and so bravely he sought to deflect it onto an easy target. Now, an obvious one may have been the Jews. They were an unpopular, mistrusted, misunderstood and highly visible minority in society, and throughout history such groups have always been targeted when calamity strikes. But, on this occasion, they weren't blamed. Instead, the Christians were publicly fingered as the culprits and brutally repressed. It seems to me quite possible that it was Papia's voice in Nero's ear that would have deflected the violent reaction away from the Jews, whom she liked, and towards the Christians, of whom her opinion is unknown. Now, none of these actions are of particular significance in the grand scheme of things in Rome, though they were of profound importance to the Jews, so it's important not to magnify them so as to come to an over-the-top conclusion. These examples do not prove that Papia was a powerful actor at court, but they do show that she did at least have some interest in affairs of state. And they beg the question, whether other things that she did, other people she helped, that we just don't know about? Probably yes, but in the absence of any evidence, we can't come to any real conclusions. It may have been, however, that the reason why she wasn't yet in a strong position to be a powerful force was because she had not yet succeeded in one of her major tasks as empress, providing a son and heir for Nero. But she wasn't far off achieving that goal. In 64, two years into her reign as empress, it was announced that she was pregnant. The Senate offered prayers and sacrifices to appear, hoping to ensure a safe delivery, and these were granted as she gave birth to a girl, whom they named Claudia Augusta. While both mother and father would have preferred it if she had been a boy, this did not stop them from holding lavish celebrations to mark the birth of the emperor's first child. A range of events were put on to mark the joyous news, including games, races, theatrical performances, as well as a number of religious rituals and services. Sadly though, everyone's happiness was short-lived, as Claudia only lived for four months. Papia's reaction to this news is not recorded but Nero was reportedly beside himself with grief. Tacitus states that he had, quote, welcomed with something of more than mortal joy the birth of a daughter by Papia. And then, when she died, quote, there was an outburst of flattery, men voting the honours of deification, of a shrine, a temple and a priest. 
the Emperor too was as excessive in his brief as he had been in his joy. If Poppea's reaction was anything like that of Nero, then she must have been absolutely devastated. But with it did come a silver lining. When Nero named his daughter Claudia Augusta, he also conferred the title of Augusta upon his wife. We've talked quite a bit before about the enormous symbolic significance of this honorific. Since the title of Empress didn't really exist, this can be considered the highest honour that could be given to a woman in the Roman world, and it was pretty sparingly given. Before her, it had only been bestowed upon a select group of women, and now Papia was one of them. It was a very important step in the process of cementing her position as Empress, and gave her words and deeds more symbolic weight. The 12 months or so following the death of Claudia saw two major events that fundamentally shaped the final, highly unstable years of Nero's reign. The first was the Great Fire in 64 that we've already talked about, an event that was largely, perhaps unfairly, blamed on him. The second took place in early 65, and it was the Pisonian Conspiracy. This was the single biggest challenge to Nero's rule, indeed, probably the biggest one since the coup that had toppled Caligula. Fed up with Nero's despotism, negligent rule and embarrassing antics, a cabal of Roman senators, army officers and various others, led by a senator named Piso, got together and planned a coup against the emperor. One suspects that it was probably the enormous size of the conspiracy that led to its failure, as, eventually, someone blabbed and everyone was captured and then either executed, exiled or forced to commit suicide. One of the most notable people caught up in it, incidentally, was Nero's former tutor and advisor Seneca, who had been drawn out of retirement to take part, such was his disappointment in the rule of his former charge. We don't know what Papia's reaction was, but one suspects that she would have been taking a back seat, as she was, at that point, heavily pregnant with her third child, the second with Nero. It would, though, have been a major scare for her, as if the fate of Caesonia and her child after the assassination of Caligula was anything to go by, she would not have long lived, and neither would her unborn child, had her husband been toppled. We know, of course, far more about the reaction of her husband, and he did not take it well. If Nero had been unstable before, this major scare seems to have tipped him into full-blown despotism, and the repression that followed was brutal and merciless. This leads us nicely, then, to another one of the many infamous events of Nero's reign. The death-slash-murder of Papia. Now, the sources are fairly united in their descriptions of what happened, though none of them go into great detail. Tacitus states that after Nero returned from the games, quote, Papia died from a casual outburst of rage in her husband, who felled her with a kick when she was pregnant that there was poison I cannot believe, though some writers do so relate, from hatred rather than from belief, for the emperor was desirous of children and wholly swayed by love of his wife. He seemed then pretty certain that it was through this vicious assault after the red mist of rage fell that Poppea died, and that it was not premeditated. Suetonius' account is similar, but adds that this happened because Poppea had, quote, scolded Nero when he came home late from the races. This seems to me to be a play on that old trope of the nagging wife, and unlikely to be true, though. Cassius Dyer is the only one to state that this may not have been deliberate, saying that Papia, quote, perished at this time through an act of Nero's, 
Either intentionally or accidentally, he had leapt upon her with his feet while she was pregnant. This image of Nero brutally kicking Papier to death is one that has survived in most popular depictions. I remember vividly a BBC series called Ancient Rome, The Rise and Fall of an Empire, which showed a young-ish Michael Sheen, while wearing an ungodly amount of makeup, brutally slamming his feet into Papier, played by Catherine McCormack, his eyes wide and inflamed with uncontrolled rage while his servants stand, helpless and in horror, unable to do anything. But while this is the accepted version in the sources, there are reasons to question it. The first is that there is absolutely no doubt that Nero deeply loved Popeye. It had been demonstrated before, and, as we'll see, his grief would know no bounds after her death. Moreover, his desire for children to continue his line, making it rather unlikely that this would have been the means of attack for him, even if he had lost control in this way. Second, the sources are all completely compromised by their absolute hatred for Nero. And while this does not necessarily make their description of this shocking event untrue, it does bring it into question. None of the writers were there at the time, and since this appears to have happened in a private setting, it is unclear if anyone actually saw this event occur. And third, it does seem to fit into a common narrative present in contemporary drama. J.P. Graham, in a book on Papier, notes that Greek literature and theatre, which Nero loved and was popular in Rome at the time, abounded with tales of men attacking and killing their pregnant wives. An almost identical event, for example, occurs in the histories by Herodotus, sometimes called the first ever true work of history, when the Persian king Cambyses attacked his wife in a manner that caused her to miscarriage, which then killed her. Then there is the case of Semele in Greek myth, where Zeus impregnated a mortal woman, but then killed her after revealing himself to her in all his godly glory. Finally, in the writings of one Greek writer, called Diogenes Laertes, there is the story of the Corinthian tyrant Periander murdering his pregnant wife in a fit of anger and jealousy over a supposed affair. My point is that this could be yet another example of Nero being fitted into a classical mould of a tyrant, and the historians of the day creating facts from unsubstantiated rumours, ones that survived unchallenged for decades. Alternative theories for how Papia died include that Nero may have simply shoved her or struck her after an argument, possibly after she chided him for being late home from the races, and this caused a miscarriage, the complications from which led to her death. This fits into the broad thrust of the story and seems more likely to me. There is also the clear possibility that he had nothing to do with it at all, and that she merely died of some illness or miscarriage without anyone's interference. Personally, I'm more inclined to see this as being a case of manslaughter, of an unstable Nero lashing out at his beloved wife, which led, in some manner or another, to her death, and therefore also of the unborn child. Nero's grief over the death of his wife knew no bounds. His fondness for Eastern traditions were apparent in her funerary arrangements, with him ordering that her body be embalmed rather than cremated, which was the norm in Roman times, and that her body be filled with spices such as frankincense and myrrh. Pliny the Elder reports that during the funerary services, a year's supply of cinnamon and cassia were burned, a practice usually reserved for the veneration of the gods. She was given a full state funeral, which was somewhat controversial. Nero may have been deeply in love with her, 
but most of the establishment thought this was a little over the top. She hadn't been empress for all that long, she wasn't from a great family, and she hadn't achieved all that much. If it had been Livia, or maybe even Agrippina, it may have been accepted. But for this jumped-up little nobody? Please. We don't have much in the way of details of what her funeral would have actually looked like, but given Nero's predilections, it would likely have been a highly elaborate, lavish, and emotional affair. We don't even know for sure where she was buried, though the consensus seems to be that it was either in the Tumulus Iuliae, the same place that Julius Caesar's daughter had been entombed, or perhaps in the mausoleum for Augustus. Whether or not Nero had been responsible for the death of his wife, it provoked another downturn in his mental state. Either through the blinding capacity of grief, or perhaps because she had acted as a moderating force upon him, Nero's reign turned not only more violent, but also more bizarre. He lashed out periodically with disastrous results, and sought to replace Papia in his other relationships, with both men and women. He took a mistress, for example, who resembled her and had her live in his household, mirroring the time when he had slept with a woman who had been a dead ringer for his mother. But things really took a turn when he started a relationship with a boy named Sporus. His backgrounds are murky, but he seems to have been a freedman, possibly a former slave of Nero. Cassius Dio states that, quote, Nero caused a boy of the freedmen, whom he used to call Sporus, to be castrated, since he too resembled Sabina and he used him in every way like a wife. He goes on to say that he would actually refer to him as Papia Sabina. Suetonius adds further details to this, quote, He castrated the boy Sporus, and actually tried to make a woman of him, and he married him with all the usual ceremonies, including a dowry and a bridal veil, took him to his house, attended by a great throng, and treated him as his wife. This Sporus Decked out with the finery of the empresses and riding in a litter, he took with him to the assizes and marts of Greece and later at Rome, fondly kissing him from time to time. Nero certainly had unorthodox means of dealing with his guilt and grief. But what is beyond doubt is that he never got over the death of Papia. One could indeed argue that she was his one true love. And now she was gone. Through a combination of lack of information and the fact that what information we do have is tainted by a variety of biases, it's very hard to get a truly balanced view of Papia Sabina. She certainly packed a lot into her 35-year-long life, and made the most of what advantages she had been given. She was quite possibly the lowest-born empress up to that point, and while that does seem to have had a tremendous effect on her ability to get things done, it does not mean that she wasn't effective. We can never know just how much of an impact she had during her life on the politics of Rome. But, just like in the case of her mother-in-law, her death played a major part in the collapse of the first imperial dynasty. Next time, we'll see the final episode in our series as we look at the last Julio-Claudian empress, Satilia Messalina. I say next time, as I'm currently going through some pretty big life changes at this point, the details of which I will share in due course, but it may lead to a delay in the release of the next episode. I certainly plan on getting it out on time, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. We're nearly at the end of the series, guys. Just one more to go.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.